Well, the enemy has uh, mustered his forces this morning, as he often does, but God has called his angels. He's stirred the hearts of his people, and victory is in the air. Victory is in the air. I wonder what your victory is today. I wonder what word God will speak to release victory to you today. Let's read from the scriptures, Acts chapter 12, verse 18. So this picks up from the story that Chad so eloquently preached on last week. And we see here the response of the angelic rescue of Peter from prison. Verse 18. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter after Herod had thoroughly searched and did not find him. He cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there a while. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. Having secured the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they were dependent upon the king's country for their food supply. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robes, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, this is the voice of a God, not of man. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. There is an obvious story, a story that pretty much anyone can follow here in the text. And then there's a hidden story. There is the person upon whom the spotlight is constantly following. There's a person who is constantly the center stage, and yet he is not the central character of the story. The central character of the story is found in the hidden story. Some years ago, Sally's mother died after a delightful life. She went to be with the Lord. She had come to the Lord late on in life, along with her husband. And as Sally and her sister were dealing with the effects of her mother's life. They were looking through various different possessions and properties. They noticed a file, a file that revealed a hidden story. David, Sally's mother, my father-in-law, had a kind of enigmatic quality to him. There was always something about David that you didn't ever quite get. 
He was an amazing man. He was a great father. He was a great friend and confidant to me. But there was always this enigmatic quality about him. There was something about him that you didn't quite ever put your finger on. Well, this file was revealed, and in the file were various documents that no one had ever seen before other than David and Betty, Sally's mother. You see, David would go off to Europe, and the story that he gave us was that he was going to reclaim vans and trucks with his friend who had a business that kind of did that kind of thing, and he went off to Europe, and sometimes he would just go off the map for days on end. We couldn't work out why he wasn't in contact. This was not the time when cell phones were particularly available, and he would sometimes be be off the map and incommunicado for maybe a couple of weeks. Well, when this document came to light, we finally understood. David had always been interested in those who were the active rebels in the Soviet Union. The people who, through their art and industry, had opposed an evil system. He informed himself about these folks. He, he, he gave himself as much information as he possibly could. And then he inserted himself into a process that ensured that those who were active opponents of that regime, who were being persecuted and pilloried by the state, had the opportunity for freedom. And it would appear that when he was in Europe all those days, he was securing their liberty. Amazing. No one ever knew. Not until after he died. Well, there is a hidden story here. There's the obvious story of a man who was raised with Caesar Claudius, a man who was raised with Caligula and Nero, a man who was referred to last week in Chad's sermon. This man here, Herod, who had inherited not only the name of his grandfather, Herod the Great, but the larger part of his property. In fact, the property, because it included a territory called Abilene, was actually greater than that of Herod the Great. And this this territory that included the ancient land of Israel was a land that he oversaw as a tenant vassal king to the to the Roman Empire. He was obviously closely associated with with the royal family, and so he had gained this prominence and had asserted his rule during the the period just after the ministry of Jesus. 
And as it says in the text, Tyre and Sidon and a variety of other smaller states around his territory were dependent upon him for their wheat and for their food. And so they had to keep on the right side of him and he had fallen out with them and Tyre and Sidon, the people and their representatives came to Caesarea, this great Roman city on the seacoast of the Mediterranean built by Roman engineers to, to create this, this marvelous edifice of, of ancient ingenuity. There in his royal palace, cooled by the Mediterranean breezes, he gave audience to the people of Tyre and Sidon. And in his royal robes and from his regal throne, he addressed the people. And the people, whether they were impressed or not, knew what it was that they had to say. This is not the voice of a man. This is the voice of a God. Now we know that his family had pretensions to divinity. Nero, Caligula, even Claudius himself began to entertain the idea that their unrivaled power surely indicated not only the favor of the gods, but perhaps maybe the incarnation of the gods in them as people. And so maybe it was that Herod thought that it was a kind of family tradition that the gods would be present in their life and inhabit what it was that they said. God wasn't at all impressed. The scriptures say this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. It doesn't have conditions attached. It doesn't have an indication that certain people who are really, really proud are opposed by God. It simply just says, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Doesn't matter who you are, where you are, what station or position in life you happen to have, God holds out his hand against pride. Two places in the New Testament, in James and in First Peter, we see this text being quoted from the Old Testament. God is in the business of holding back people's pride, but giving gifts and favor and prominence to humility. Even in a singular life, you can see how God will hold back pride, but allow the humility in the same person to gain greater prominence. This is the way of God. Because the big issue between us and God is that from the very beginning, we've wanted to be as God which is why Adam and Eve took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Not because they wanted the knowledge, but because the temptation given to them by the serpent was this. 
you will be as God. You'll be able to marshal all of your own life. You'll be able to oversee and manage the, the, the constituents of your, of your life and of your existence. You will be in charge and there will be no one over you. And this seed, this temptation that, that, that bore fruit in the first sin, of course, has been spread to each of us as the seeds from that first fruit have been spread abroad across every human being that's ever walked the planet. And so God, in his wisdom, chooses to hold back pride and give prominence to humility. Human beings, we... We have this, this great battle going on inside of us, even in the celebrities that we seek to lord and vaunt. We, we see them growing on the celebrity that we give them, and then when we see the pride that will naturally follow, we want to cut them down. Pride and humility are the great, are the great adversaries in our breast. Herod allowed pride to overtake him and ran into the brick wall of God's hand and was eaten by worms. There's another story, a story that's not immediately obvious, you have to kind of put it together. You have to piece it together. It says right at the very end that there is this mission that Saul and Barnabas, Saul who will be known as Paul for much of the rest of the New Testament, Paul and Barnabas, they have returned from their mission. Well, what is that mission? Well, you'll remember that Barnabas goes and finds Paul, Saul at the time, goes and finds Paul. He goes up to Tarsus, his, his home city, and the histories outside of the Bible tell us that he couldn't find him there because he's been excommunicated from all of the synagogues. And we know this from Paul's own story that he's received the 39 lashes, the symbol of excommunication, five times. Paul has, has heard the call of Jesus to be a witness to the Gentiles, but the first experience of this seems to have been one that's been beset by danger and difficulty, by persecution and hardship. And when Barnabas eventually finds him, the external sources to the Bible say that he's in a cave away from people because he's been beaten and abused so much. Barnabas finds him, brings him back to Antioch where the first harvest of the Gentiles is seen. And for a whole year, they're gloriously employed in the work of God, seeing the Gentile harvest come in. And during that time, a, a prophet from Jerusalem called Agabus a man who we'll see from time to time in the text of the Acts of the Apostles. Agabus comes to Antioch. People are being drawn there because of this great maelstrom of God's power and, and might. Agabus comes under the impulse of the Holy Spirit and brings a prophecy to say that there will be a famine throughout the whole world. 
And when they hear this, Paul and Barnabas and the people who have now come to follow Jesus in Antioch decide that they'll gather a great collection, a great offering, a great monetary gift for those who will suffer the most, the poor, the followers of Jesus who are being persecuted, who are being pursued by the Jewish authorities, and they'll take this gift and they'll place it at the feet of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And so they gather the gift and they go to Jerusalem. Now this is 14 years after Paul has met Jesus on the road to Damascus. And Paul gives us insights as to what it is that happens on the journey. In Galatians chapter 2, he tells us the story of his visit to Jerusalem with Barnabas. He comes to those who were considered to be pillars of the church. To James, the brother of Jesus. To John and to Peter. And Paul says... I shared with them my gospel, my witness to the Gentiles, ensuring that I had not run in vain. And he said, they added nothing to my gospel, but extended the right hand of fellowship to me and Barnabas, saying that we had been sent to the Gentiles, even as Peter had been sent to the Jews. And then they returned home from their mission. So those few verses have got a whole backstory, a hidden story that no one knew. There's a hidden story happening right now in your life, in the life of your family, in the life of this church in the life of this nation. The story that you see on television, that you read in the papers, is one story, but there's another story. And it's a story that has a central character. You would imagine, wouldn't you, that the hidden story finds the character of Paul or Barnabas as the central character. We know that the central character of the other story that we read here in the text is Herod. A man full of pomposity and pride. But who is the central character of the hidden story? Who would it be that would be indicated from what it is that God has done? If you look back across the history of the church, you see this depressing tale of tyranny, of decadence and deprivation, especially during the dark centuries of the Middle Ages. You see how the church, once resplendent with the glory of Christ, has now become so pompous, so pride-filled, that anyone can lead a congregation, that anyone can be the leader of the church worldwide. But hidden in that story is another story. Yes, we see the great divines like Augustine. Maybe we see others like 
Francis of Assisi. Maybe we recognize particular theologians and individuals down through that time, but there's another story. A man called Peter Waldo. A man called John Wycliffe. A man called Jan Hus, who most people have never heard of. Peter Waldo lived in Lyon in France and gathered a group of missionaries called the Poor Men of Lyon. And they disavowed their riches and translated the Bible into French so that the people could hear the word of God in their own language. And they were pursued and persecuted by the church. And then John Wycliffe, who was the first translator of the Bible into English. And again, he's castigated and excommunicated by the church. He has to run for his life. Jan Hus, there in Prague, in what is today the Czech Republic, has become a follower of John Wycliffe, believing like him that people should have the Bible in their own tongue, in their own hands. The church, the powerful, invite him to a conference near Lake Constance. And they fool him into believing that he's going to come and present the case of people like Peter Waldo and the Waldensians and Peter and, and John Wycliffe and the Lollards. Jan Hus is fooled because of his godly naivety. They burn him at the stake. And as they're lighting the fire, they take John Wycliffe's Bible and they use it to kindle the flame. Surely, all is lost. And as he's at the stake, Jan Hus says, you may burn my flesh today, but here today, a fire is being set that will burn for a hundred years. And almost to the day, a hundred years later, a little monk named Martin, who had been reading the Bible in his own tongue, nailed the theses of Protestant evangelical faith to the door of the church and said, here I stand. I can do no other. Last week, we met a group of young, I guess the new term is genzennial. So it's like Generation Z, and I still find it difficult to say Z and not Z, but there you are. Generation Z and the millennials, they kind of got 
all mixed up in this cocktail called the Jensenials. And uh, these Jensenials were people uh, that I and others have encountered in coffee shops across Dayton. And they represent one of the stories that is current and is being promoted and is being, is being broadcast in our world. And that story is this, that the church in this last year has gone through the most catastrophic decline that it's ever gone through in this country. And of course, that, that fact has been reinforced by pastors up and down the land saying maybe 50% of the people are no-shows. And some of the largest churches across the country have spoken to me and told me that maybe only 50% of their congregation has returned after COVID and there's no indication as to whether they're going to come back. And then alongside this, there is the emergence of the nuns. Not nuns, but nuns. The nuns are people who believe the basic tenets of the faith but have no identification with either a denomination or a congregation. And they may occasionally go to a local church, but they are people who are non-affiliated. And this group of young people that we have met in the coffee shops would by and large be identified with this group. The Economist last week said that the nuns are now the largest religious group in America. And for the first time in written American history, less than 50% of people identify with a congregation or a denomination. So there's the story. But this little group of people gathered in someone's backyard and we opened the scriptures and I said to them, I'm going to be preaching on this passage next week and this passage is like that little piece of bread at the end of the loaf when you've been cutting the loaf and then you get to this rind at the end and you look at it and you think, I don't know whether I can make a sandwich out of this. And so I, I looked at this passage and I thought, wow, pretty thin fare there. I don't know whether I'll be able to get anything out of that. I better ask the nuns. And so we looked at it as a group. And as the Discovery Bible method suggests, I didn't come as the teacher, I came simply as a participant. Everyone looked at the text, added no information from outside of the text, they simply asked God to speak to them. Maybe they didn't even ask God, maybe they just read the text. And we had a moment of quiet to consider what the main point was. One young woman who sat there said, you know, I've been neglected pretty much all my life. And although she didn't regale us with any of the details, you could tell that there had been terrible hurt. And as she began to weep, she said, but it says here in the Bible that all this other stuff 
is irrelevant because the main thing is that God's word continued to increase and spread. Verse 24. She had her Elijah moment. Elijah, who has run from the chaos through the desert to the mountain of God. And God says, what are you doing here, Elijah? He says, I've been very faithful and there's no one else left. They've killed all the prophets. God said, step outside. I'm about to pass by. And there was a searing wind stripping the mountain of the dust and the sand. And then there was an almighty earthquake that shook the mountains to its very roots. And then there was fire on the mountain, consuming everything that had not been stripped bare by the wind or shaken by the earthquake. And God was not in any of those things. Scholars believe that God was showing Elijah a kind of cinematic picture of his past experiences, the stripping away of himself and the nation as they suffered drought and famine, the shaking of his life when in the home of the widow of Zarephath, the little boy dies, and the upheaval of that death and the shock of the loss. And then the fire falling on Carmel and the prophets of Baal being defeated. All of these experiences are in cinematic form being presented to him, but God is not in those things. He's somewhere else. And there in the Hebrew, it says, there was a deep murmur under the silence. There was a deep murmur under the silence. And it was the voice of God. Which story are you taken up into? The story that everybody else sees. The story with the bright lights and the fireworks. The story of triumph and chaos. The story of changes and turnings. The story of pomposity and vanity. The story of the world that we see around us. Or are you attentive to another story. I've seen the touch of revival with great gratitude several times in my life. I've never been at a Bible study like the one that I was at last week where the Spirit of God was so present that everyone was taken to the place of tears. 
People who have perhaps never experienced that in their entire life. Uttering prayers, wondering what it was that was happening as each person shared what it was that God was saying through this simple text. It was God's word that was the main character of the hidden story. And it's God's word that is the main character of the hidden story of your life. And what does he say? He speaks words of love and of comfort and of correction and of compassion. But here's the thing, whatever kind of word it is, it always does something amazing. Because faith comes by hearing the word and the mountains move by faith alone. And so when you look at the mountains of the world, when you look at the tempests and the storms, when you look at the wind and the waves, do you have faith? Or are you swept up and taken away? And if you have faith, you only have faith because God has spoken. And if you do not have faith, it's only because you haven't listened because God is always speaking. You have a hidden story and the main character is the word of God. We're gonna move into a time of communion. But this is a holy moment. You can feel it, can't you? You can feel the other story being rolled back and stripped away. You can feel the hidden story beginning to emerge like that young woman last week who now begins to see the signposts, the indications that God was there, that God was speaking. And in the same way that it brought revival to her and to the others with her, it'll bring revival to you as you choose to look away from the apparently obvious story to the hidden story and listen to the voice of the main character. So as we go into and through communion, Here's your opportunity to say one of two things. The first is, I don't think, I don't think I've heard that voice and I know I need to. And as we said on numerous occasions in the past, 
You can do that all in your head and you can do that all privately, or you can do it in the way that the scriptures would indicate is the best, which is to say to other believers, help me with this. Stand with me in this. Cooperate with me in this. And the prayer team will come and recruit members of the congregation and they'll pray with you as you come. And I'm absolutely confident that you'll hear the voice of God. And then perhaps there are others who have heard the voice of God. And maybe it's begun to do the work because you've begun to attend to it. It's begun to do faith in you. And what you want is to say, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief. Help me go further, deeper. Help me with this tiny, tiny word that's created this this mustard seed. Lord, let it be planted so that it might grow. Let's remember. Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread. And after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take this, for this is my body. Do this as often as you do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, drink this all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is given for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you're so committed to us that you not only came for us, that you not only died for us, that you not only carried away the penalty of our sin and laid it in the grave. Thank you, Jesus, that you not only rose again and that one day soon you'll return. But thank you, Jesus, that your name is the Word. And you speak to us. And you talk with us. And we recognize, Lord, that there is a hidden story in our life. The story of your dealings with our hearts. We pray, Lord, that the hidden story would be made manifest in our lives as we hear you speak, receive the faith, 
and see the mountains move. We pray this, Lord, for ourselves and for our sisters and brothers all around us. We pray it, Jesus, in your name. And God's people say. So the band will lead us again. I'll be here with the worship team. The worship team have been trained in how to hear the voice of God. And they'll be recruiting members of the congregation who may be similarly trained, mothers may be just in the process. But we'll pray with you as you come. Don't make the mistake of not coming. Allow the hidden story to become the main theme today. And let God and what he's said to you, his love for you, define your life. Amen. Amen.